called Jew Alert. <laughs> two live Jews. Two live Jews. Two actually alive Jews. I love this. You I got, know. got like the, the clean beard. I got the pepper going, salt and pepper going on. You know, well, I don't know how I haven't gone gray, but my theory, I mean, I have gray, but my theory yeah. is, is like if you go bald early, yeah, you you keep the color in your hair because my friends, what, all these silver foxes that I know, got these gray heads of hair and they're gray as anything. But they're all like, "How come your beard is so brown?" Yeah, man, it's looking good. I don't need that hair though. Yeah, I just, I just I hate that I have a thick beard, but it's so silvery that like it doesn't look like anything's there. So it just annoys me. I know that's not what we're going to talk about today, but it just whatever. It just, You're a handsome man. I don't think it really matters. <laughs> That's my pose. And with that, there's only room for one set of baldness. It's uh, look. It's it, this is what it is. It's just two thumbs. Like that's what I, whenever two bald guys talk to each other, all I see is thumbs doing it. <laughs> What's up, Mario? I see Mario just joined. Uh oh. The usual crew is going to be heckling and jekyllin. I can tell. That's Everyone was excited when I when I I was going to call. You know, the funny thing is, is um. You're on my list of people to hit up, and thank you for filling in. Adam filled in last minute. We had a cancellation. And, but you're on my list. There's a short list of people to, to have these conversations with. Oh, and I was like, when am I going to be ready to speak to Adam? I'm not sure. Oh, man. We, well, no, the reason is, is that you, both you and I um, are not quiet political musicians. Mm -hmm. And we're also um, we're active in general. about We do a lot of different stuff. So it's it's always like, how do you, in an hour, how do you bring all of that to the table without having it be one-sided, right? And having it be like a squawk fest about one thing. Because one of, the, one of my favorite things about you as an artist is your voice, your political voice, um, and also you know, on social media, because I think that's yeah. important. Yeah. You know, that whole thing where when people tell artists to shut up and just stay in their lane is the funniest, oh. it's the funniest thing to me ever. I don't even understand that concept. Well, you know, the funniest reaction I saw to that was um, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. Yes, that's when, the ultimate. Yeah, I mean, the guy is like, you know, just stick to music. And he's like, did you not listen to my entire catalog? <laughs> like, no, what? but what's even, you know, he's, a, he's like a PhD in political science from Harvard. Yeah. So not only is yeah. he an expert in what he's talking about, that's the, yeah. it's like, but that's the height of where we're at with, I, I want to say the stupidity of humanity at this point, because I don't know what else to call it. Yeah, it's certainly the frustration of the lack of belief in science and facts and logic. And I think that a lot of, of what we are and where we are as a nation comes down to the willful ignorance of people and the purposeful, like, uninformed not informing people of how things work like you know we're on the verge of a really major anniversary of a horrible act uh in this country's history tomorrow with um i think it's it's tomorrow the ne or sunday the tulsa you know racial bombings you yes know, at 99 years ago and you know you have a president that says you know if it wasn't for me nobody would know what juneteenth is you know this it just comes down to people not understanding civics, people not understanding government, people not understanding science, people not, yeah. you know, there's a reason why a Donald Trump exists. And there's a reason why there's like a gaping hole for someone like him to run through because there's a lot of angry, uninformed people that just, it's easy. It's funny, you know, I think of Rage Against the Machine was huge 
when Bill Clinton was president. And I'm like, why aren't they huge when Donald Trump is president or George W. Bush? That's when we needed Rage Against the Machine. I know. You know, I have a theory on that concept, and it has to do, it also ties in with music production and what I think is successful in music. Yeah. One thing that I don't, I'm just digressing. No. I think the idea that a, a musician is not a well-informed, educated person is a common thread, sort of the stupid musician. I don't know any really dumb musicians that are successful. Most no. of the guys that I know who have been doing it the way that we've been doing it are really diverse, bright open, smart, investigative, um, committed people. Right. And committed to education because music is not easy. It's difficult. It's a difficult thing. It's con you're constantly chasing knowledge with it. It's not, it's yeah. not like you got it and you're done. No, oh, I got this thing. I'm done, right? It's like, it's, a, it's like a discipline that never stops beating on you to get better. You have to get better. Otherwise, it just passes you by. Yeah. And, in and inherently, I think that keeps us open. Well... I also think about music and my own sort of introduction to it as it's completely through a black American lens. And if you're going to be a white musician in this culture, <clears throat> everything that you do is steeped in the history of this country and the history of the black experience in this country. You know, if you're into rock, that means you've gone through the blues. The blues is black music. Right. If into anything that grooves your ultimately that comes from jazz and that is black music so telling a musician whose entire I, I look at it this way um my entire mentorship and my entire pathway into a career in music was fostered by mentored by and educated by black musicians so telling me to shut up based on what i've learned and who i've learned from and, you know, it's it's like, what is, you know, the, the, the term is just stick to music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. It's like, it's so ignorant because it's like, really? So that assumes that you know anything about who I am and where I come from. Especially, by the way, as a Jewish American. That I know. Well, that's a, I have a, I have a good Jewish American story, which I'll tell you yeah. later on. But, um, you know, if you ask me, if I think back and look over the history of my music and people are always asking me, like, you know, who are your influences? What influenced you? That whole kind of thing. And I was never like, besides having the starry eyes when I was a kid for metal bands, because yeah. metal was bigger than life to me. Like, yeah. until I understood the whole thing behind the music business and all that, like, that was still a dreamy idea to me. Metal and stages and Iron Maiden and big, you know, like all this crazy stuff. But yeah. The music that I grew up on and that really has always influenced my life has always been black music. I mean, besides metal, which is also der a derivation of black music, which much more, it's very white in terms of, it's kind of, but, you know, my, my biggest influence is Stevie Wonder, Reggae, Steel Pulse, James Brown. I couldn't do a day, I mean, when my, on the worst day of my life, or like, well, my wife is down. I'm always putting on James Brown. And immediately we both will remember how, like, how good you feel and how great that music is and how timeless. Or Prince. Or you go on and on and on and on. Miles Davis. Go on and on. You know what I mean? It's, it's never ending. It's the fabric of who we are. But back to the idea, though, of music goes in cycles. I think that people, when there's a lot of money in the country... 
And that tends to happen when Democrats are in office for long enough because they start paying down the national debt, they invest in social programs, whether they're perfect or not, which is a whole other conversation about young people yeah. and perfect politicians. But the amount of money that the regular everyday every man has during those periods increases, and therefore your ability to enjoy life and be happier tends to happen. And you can make positive decisions because you're not struggling to pay bills. You're not struggling to do the everyday things. And during those times, the music business usually fosters, it's sort of like the bounty season. Not only do you get happy music, but you get angry music and you get, you get dark music and you get light music and pop music sores and heavy metal sores. But when things get bad and money gets tighter in the country, you start to get rid of like the stuff in between starts to not do as well. And you'll, you get pop music does really well because people want to feel happy. Legacy yeah. music does really well because people want to reminisce about a better time. And right. heavy music does really well because people are just want to put their energy into that. No. But I think where we're at right now is that people are out of energy to put it into that type of music. So they want to put it into legacy, legacy music because it's familiar and it's less painful than discovering something new mm. given the times, you know, I mean, I'm seeing that, you know, even Spotify streaming is saying that like their, their legacy catalogs are blowing up over the yeah. last. Well, actually the, the catalog in general, it's funny. My brother, I never, I don't really talk about it a lot, but my brother ran catalog for Apple music for about seven years. And before he did that, he ran Rhino records, which was the big, like for Warner Music, it's the catalog division of probably one of the best catalogs in the history of music. And even with a very recently healthy publishing and pop music singles-driven business that, is, that has existed, catalog has been the backbone and the real earner for a long time now. And hmm. theories, one, I, I mean, I think catalog is always going to out-earn current music in a lot of ways because there's so much more of it than the current you know the current music or the new stuff and you, the new you also don't have to spend money on breaking it exactly it's always sitting there waiting to be streamed or in certain cases a lot of people still buy physical media and they buy it but what's been interesting with this last 20 years specifically for me in pop music is that because of a lot of technology and because of the ease of attaining technology, I've noticed a lot of contraction of styles of music. So in other words, when we were kids, a label had a rock department, a label had a jazz division, a label had a classical division. Now the labels, they had that 10 year period where streaming got away from them. They didn't really you know, in a lot of ways, iTunes bailed the label industry out with a legal, like finding, you know, 2004, you, you found a legal way to buy MP3s at one source. And they were making like four to five billion dollars a year off of legal downloads through that store. But I think what also happened in that next 15 years, and we're still in it, is that while there's always at all times tons of music on a major label level, we really entered a period where like it was like pop with a rapper in the verse and a female singer in the chorus yeah 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 like friday night i'm a girl i'm just stupid i'm a girl i'm just a stupid girl that partied on friday night we went through a period and we know guys that were you know 
I would say the Dr. Luke uh, ization of pop music for a 10 year period was like, I need a single like that. You get Max Martin and this is what pop music is. And you get a rapper and you get the, it. It's really unique in, in, in the history, I think, of, of, of music in the last 10 years. We were ripe for political and angry. And there is some, I mean, there are, are plenty of artists that are, that have a message, but man, from the major labels, I don't know about you, man, but I just, I don't even go under those buildings anymore. I haven't been in those buildings for 10, 12 years. Yeah. There's nothing happening there. Uh, for me personally, well, uh, where that started falling off for me to give, you know, to, you know, yeah. cause I did a lot of remix work and that's always the lucrative part of that is from major labels. So oh, if you want to make money from, right. So that's, so, yeah. My toe always stayed in major labels for the remix work. And so I would go in where exactly what you, to your point of sort of the disappearing um, silos inside of a major label, which used to make that label. The reason why it was major is because it could buy independence and then put them into a silo. Yeah. Is that urban music when it was at its heyday, they didn't have like a rap, you know, a hip hop department and an R and B department. And, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't delineate the different styles of urban music. It was just like, Oh, that's urban. That's on that floor. All did this. Right. It's all on that floor, but everything else was like rock had a floor, pop had a floor yeah. and this had a floor and that had a floor. And so, you know, because the labels treated urban music, which was the most popular music for a long time as, as sort of like a bastard stepchild, it never got to grow the way that black music got to grow during the Motown era, where you had sort of its own f sort of factory of creating, creating hits for that, that were based on not only, you know, great songs and, and performers that were popular, but a great song with a, you know, a popular performer, even if they did the same song 10 times <clears throat> to get it out there with different artists. And we've kind of lost it's also because the game is so much bigger, I think, because it can make so much more money. And I, I attribute it to that, to the Backstreet Boys, Alanis Morissette time. Mm. You know, because if you were a major label, you could sign, you know, 30 acts that you would write off 29 of them. Right. As long as you got an Alanis Morissette once, you were set for years and years and years and years. Yeah. Because that one artist basically would fill your coffers with tons of money to speculate. Oh, yeah. Well, no, and, the, and actually a good example of that in jazz was Nora Jones, because Blue Note Records was on the verge of going into, like, non-existence. And then Nora Jones comes along and sells about 20 million records, and I know multiple friends of mine stayed signed to blue note for an extra five years because of Nora Jones. Yeah. And you, you touch on a really good point, which is these, it, the nature of the record business has always been. And it's funny when I explain how a contract for an artist works, it always cracks me up because it's all speculation and yeah. it's all your advance that you pay back. I love when I explain this to people, not in the record business, your advance is effectively a credit card bill that you pay off at 81% interest or 85% or <laughs> interest rate. Right. So, and I know you and I both experienced this. I, I had a label deal with a label called Palm. It was a venture started by Chris Blackwell and they had nothing but money, but, but they, what they didn't have was, um, and I liked my A&R guy, so this is r rude to say, but they didn't have the actual label infrastructure of talent to break artists. They just had a lot of money. So they yeah. just wasted a lot. But 
one of the artists they didn't waste any money on was myself. I would turn in my little record and then unbeknownst to them, it would do like 25 or 30 licenses and they would have spent nothing on the record. So I was just like, within two quarters, I was like, hey, fellas, where's where's that beer commercial money? You know what I mean? I was right. And the thing is, you know, when you start learning that, like, well, they gave you 20 grand to make a record and you did a two hundred thousand dollar license. But guess what? On the master side of that license, you still owe them. You know, that 20 grand is actually you need to earn half a million bucks in there. You know, it's so tricky. So I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of digressing just because I love the thought of an 85 percent interest rate. It's it's criminal. (laughs) Um, And actually, you know, as a result, it's funny because of current events and because of protesting and, you know, a lot of things with the Black Lives Matter movement. Labels are now being forced after a hundred years and readjust accounting practices because it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, you know, you can't treat art, you know, you can't treat black artists like this and be like, yeah, here's a Cadillac, Chuck Berry. That's your, those are your royalties, you know? And it's like, that shit doesn't work anymore. So that's, that's kind of a cool thing. But, but I think that the contraction of all of these styles of music, like for me, Labels just became like, cause you were talking about like an urban division and that urban division had like that urban division could have Luther Vandross. Right. And Pharaoh Munch. It's like, right. they're, they have nothing to do with each other, but somewhere there's an A&R guy going, Hey, can you two guys, I got a, someone call, I got a spam okay, phone call. Okay. Um, can you guys work? Together? We'll make more money. And it's like, no, you won't. You'll ruin both artists. That's what you'll do. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I know there's uh, it's I it's funny. I know I'm an old balding Jew and I'm like, ah, these labels, the pop music is terrible. But I just I, I just don't look to it. I, I Are you still yeah, doing see, and doing stuff? Are you still in that? Like, well, once in a while. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm yeah. not again, like I said, where my for I kind of I got so tired of the hipster young A&R guy who got thrown the, 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 the remixing gig to, you know, to go out you do a remix and then they'd be like, Hey, can you send me that? I'm going to throw it in Ableton and I'm going to do some stuff to it. And I'd be like, homeboy, a no. Yeah. B who are you? Who are you? I don't even know who you are. We've never even met in person. It would be different if it was like, Hey, Adam, who I know is the A&R guy at Epic, and you come to me and say, hey, Holmes, I need you to do this remix. I'm looking for something specific. Can you take a shot at it? And then I send it to you, and you're like, listen, you're 90% there. Do you mind if I just do a little, like, secret sauce and we we could do it together? And then I'd be like, yeah, because I know you. Yeah, Yeah. that sounds good, Adam. Can you finish it for me? Perfect. Great. I I think the other thing is is there's there's respect there, and there's a track record, and there's... there's me and there's a knowledge of your knowledge to do stuff where i think that the equation is very messed up and i thankfully i've never i've actually never had this experience because i think i got out of that game early enough that, <laughs> that ableton didn't by the time able ableton existed i was already like you know an old man and i was doing other things but i i that would annoy the shit out of me because i i you know i had a manager where one of the interns at the management company got into advertising 
And I'm talking like, this is someone that was an intern for three months and then got a job somewhere in advertising and then was like, hey, would you work on this? I, I hate working on TV commercials. Like, it's like my least favorite thing. Yeah, but, yeah. Oh, and it's like, can you work on this? And then a kid that was an intern that I told, like, you might want to buy, if you want to do production, like, maybe check out this program. Like, this is how early in his education it was that he got this gig. And within four months, he's like, I want to hire you for something. And then for the next three weeks, I'm going to give you notes every day on why you're not doing it correctly. And it's <laughs> like, I, I'm just like, dude, here are the splits. And that's my other thing. I have this huge thing. When anybody says, just send me the stems. I'm like, yeah. I'll send you three stereo groupings of stems. You won't have access to anything. At least learn the terms. I'll send you the splits, you fucking idiot. And then, <laughs> then you'll have the individual track anyway. Um, but I love that. I, 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 I'm sorry, man, that like you do a remix and some dude wants to like mess with no, it. Dude, and it's even worse. It's like you're doing a, you're doing a production and you know, you're in there producing the thing yeah. But look, you know, full on major label budget production, and the guy, and they're like, it's same thing. Send me the stems, like, and I'll be like, listen, you have to understand something about me. When the stems leave my daw, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. I'm out. That's I'm it. I'm not taking your stuff back. I'm not. I'm done. Like I know exactly where everything is. I know where we are in the mix. I know where everything is going on. If you can't communicate what you need from me. Or come to my studio and just sit there and I'll, I'll do what you're telling me to do so we can try it. I'm not going to take time to export. No, no, no. You no, know no. what I mean? But it, yeah. I, whatever. It, you reminded it, me of something. You reminded me of something, though, because I did a thing for, for Clive Davis. And and I, I dealt back and forth with Clive. And then I dealt with the NR dude that was the remix dude for Clive. And, you know... Working for someone like that, I was sort of like, all right, it's Clive Davis. I'm just going to take the notes and they're going to be insane. But it's fucking Clive Davis. And, and he's 170, 11 years into this. I just have to listen. And then it turned <laughs> then then the Clive Davis Davis notes turn into his remix guys notes. And it got to a point. It was an Elvis Presley thing. And. Um, it was so surreal. The guy kept saying, I need you to put more compression on a certain track. So I'm like, fine. I'll, I just, I'm like, I'm, I'm adding everything that you're asking for. This thing is so compressed at this point. It's like, it's so squashed. Like it's a square. Yeah. It's just, there couldn't be there. There's the answer is none more compression there. It's physically impossible. And so the, 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 he ends up coming to my studio and we end up finding out, my buddy Marty and I, who was, was mixing with me, he meant reverb. Ah, well, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the same like thing. Yeah. So those kinds of things really crack me up because I'm like, this guy has a job at a label for a couple hundred grand a year, probably. And he does not like compression and reverb? Come on. Well, that's, like, that sometimes always makes me question my career choices sometimes when I'm like, here, you know, I've been, I've been a full-time record producer for 25 years. I'm yeah. doing fine. I have two kids. You know, like, I'm living and I'm doing well. Yeah. But these schmohas have, like, six-figure jobs. Schmohas, it's like, they're making, like, 300 grand a year. They barely yeah. can. They don't even know what they're looking for. And you're like, maybe that would have been a better route because you don't need to know anything. Maybe I know too much. Maybe well, that's the problem. 
My, it's funny you say that. My father, so my father was a record producer for 45 years, and you know, he had he really was a record producer. I think in a great era where it was like you were constantly working, but it was groups, you know, groups and musicians and really great acts. And you know, he worked with some amazing, you know, Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway and Charles Mingus and Joe Zavano, like just amazing jazz, amazing R and B, you know. And he would always say to me. Part of me wishes that I didn't care enough because there's a way to fail to the top in the record. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I should have just taken like three and four year contracts where it doesn't matter. Nothing mattered, you know, but he cared so much, so much about the music that he was incapable of put. And he taught me that he, you know, in a lot of ways, I've been lucky too. And fortunate, but he taught me some other things where it's basically when I was 18, he was like, stay the fuck out of major labels. You will never be happy working on a yeah. major <laughs> record. And, I, and it actually, it formed my entire career path. By the time I was 23 or 24, I had my fill of playing on those kinds of records and working with those kinds of artists. And I was just like, I'm, I'm done, man. Like, you know, you think A&R guys or gals are a certain way now the gatekeepers that existed in the 90s during by the way the 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 alanis Morissette and hootie and the blowfish there was some great a and r people but they were also so absolutely confounding there were a different level of confounding not a hustle i wanted to be around not a hustle that yeah. i ever understood i i always had respect for someone like you who could do major label remixes and like run that gauntlet because to me it was just like i i get one set of notes and i'm just like you, do you ever hear that story about apex twin getting uh called to do a janet jackson remix no but i want to hear the story oh, okay now. no it's real i don't know him i'm not even going to even front and be like oh if you know apex is my whatever buddy. tell the story but someone some genius saw Aphex Twin somewhere in a write-up and said, we want him to do a Janet Jackson remix. So he proceeded, this was his remix. I think he got like 30 or 40 grand. He turned in a dat with the remix and it was like eight or nine minutes long and just found noise. It was like, you know, so it was supposed to be, so this is, I love the thought that, that Aphex Twin is like, oh, you want me to do a Janet Jackson remix? Well, this is what Apex Twin does. And he proceeds to turn in. <laughs> but that's the remix on a debt. Here's your debt. So someone probably had to buy a debt machine at this point. Listen to the whole fucking thing. Yeah. Listen to an eight minute thing of like, you know, like John Cage meets like actual digital distortion. And I just was, if I ever meet him, I just, two things. I want to see his tank that he has on his property. He owns a tank. And I want to shake his hand and be like, I hope you did something really cool with that 40,000 bucks. It may have been 40,000 pounds, which is even more money. That's, but, I, but that's but that's that's the classic. Like, there's so many stories we can tell in that. I have, I'll tell you one story about the commercial music world, which was like, it's the epitome of the stupidity of people who think they know something when they don't know anything, they just following cool. Um, we got Ming and FS got into doing commercial music because people realized, well, I had been doing scratching on a bunch of like commercials and stuff. We sort of tripped our way into the commercial music world. We're making good money, you know, with licensing and all that. 
stars of a commercial. Yeah, of <laughs> the Nissan's the Nissan's um, shift campaign. Or sh- I was love it? that man. I was so- for my boys. I would see you guys all over town. I'd be like, <laughs> yo. You're in a fucking car commercial. You are the car commercial. That was that shit. Thought- that shit paid for a tour, so you people have to understand how important those things are. Like yeah. we were that tour, we were literally like, "How are we going to pay for this tour?" And then the Nissan Sounds or whatever it was called yeah. happened, and that that was with Mophonics with uh, Michael Frick, and then that that paid for the tour. But so after we got into doing commercial music and blah 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 blah, blah one day I get a call, and the it's and it's an ad agency person, and they're like. We have a song that we want to do something similar to. Can you guys do soundalikes? And I was like, of course. What what is it? Just send it to me so that I you know I can make sure it's a thing that we can do. Sure. So they send me oh. the piece of music, and it's a Ming and FS tune. Oh yeah. And yeah. I'm like, I'm like, so I go, so I go. Oh, okay. Do you not want to pay for the licensing? Is that what's up? Like I was trying to, I was confused as to why they were sending me this piece, a oh, Ming and FS tune. And they were like what do you mean? And I was like, well, do you, I mean, like I, I have the session, I can just change some things and we can maybe, you know, you don't have to pay the master fee and I could just, we could just get a publishing, whatever. I was, cause I assumed that they knew that I was making for Ming and FS. They just didn't realize that like they knew yeah. me as Aaron. So after <laughs> this weird, awkward, like five minute conversation where I'm having a nuts and bolts conversation about how I can make this thing happen for them. Yeah. They, um, I eventually I'm like, wait, do you know I'm Ming of Ming and FS? You're sending right. me a Ming and FS track. I can make that music for you any way you want. You don't have to, you know what I mean? Like you hire me to do that. This is this can happen. Right. And they were like, What? <laughs> Once they realized that I was the person they were trying to knock off, guess who didn't get the job? You. Of course. So check this out. You experienced literally um what is it called? Um it's a it's a Cohen Brothers movie. Um uh, but you you were Barton Fink by the people that wrote Weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> there was such a disconnect. I it's unbelievable. You were you so so you had to tell them that you were the guy, and then they were like, "Bye, we don't want to work with you" because they probably got afraid that you would charge them too much because you were already the temp music. I I was it wasn't even I was it was so unreal to me because I was like I'm I'm letting you know I don't care. Mm. Like, I'm not offended that you want me to knock off the track. That's great. I get it. I, I understood the business of commercial music. I was like, sure. if you need me to help you out, because... And the, the funny thing was, is I actually said to them, well, did you call Ohm Records and ask them to license the tune? Because I'm pretty sure it's yeah, they, not going to cost you an arm and a leg. Yeah, they're they're open for business. They, they were, I, I was like, what did you... I was like, did you call Chris Smith? And he was like, I want 300 grand. I was like, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, and, the, and you know what kills me about that? It's like when you work for those commercial music people, they're always telling you, there's no budget, there's no budget, there's no budget, there's no budget. And then the next week, they license Rolling Stone, a yes. Rolling Stone tune. And you're like, Rolling yeah. Stone tune is like a, a half a million dollars. Yeah. It, yeah. Actually, it, it's a million. It's yeah. So li- there you go. But th- you're, you're, like, you're sitting here going, anyway. Well, so, you know, all the music business is crazy. Yeah. We're crazy. So we're able to, to, to survive in it. Yeah. And, you know... I, I, Oh, one thing, like I got called from an ad agency to work on a Pepsi tune, a Pepsi commercial. And and I got called because they knew I was me. And in 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 the spirit of Barton Fink, I was called to not copy one of my motion worker tracks, but do something right like myself. So yeah. right track to this specific animation. And I did it, uh, you know, and the thing is, I 
I didn't mind working on commercials for a short period of time because it was really helping me learn how to write to picture and right. make go in sync. And it was my goal always was to get into films and documentaries. And, and even at the birth of the motion worker shit, I had already scored some films. I had already worked on docs. I really, really loved that world. Um, and it's, it, and it's why I'm in it now, but, um, I did a pass and I sent them a thing and I'm like, this sounds just like, actually like my latest record. It's just, I twisted it a little and I was told that I didn't know how to write like myself. <laughs> and I just, and it was like, and that, and that happened two or three more times where I just got fired for not sounding enough like motion worker. And I was like, happy Hanukkah, I'm out. And, and the thing was, I started realizing with ad agencies when they wanted you to sound like you, the kill fee needs to be pretty good so that when I, when I chase my tail and I'm told that I'm not as good as me, at least I get a little bit of bread and I'm out of there in two yeah. weeks. Week. But it is nuts. And I know you want to talk about other shit other than no, no, no. I mean adventures in like, you know, tap dancing for ad agencies. It's unbelievable. I always liked the dudes at Ohm Records, by the way. I always got along with the guys that, that ran the label. I did some... They did some compilations and licensed stuff for me. Were, were they cool with you guys? You oh, yeah, I mean, one of my closest friends, I haven't, we don't, I don't speak to as much as I, I, I would like to. John Cornette was one of the three partners. There was Curious Shell, yeah. Chris Smith, and John Cornette. At the time that I was signed to the label, um, it was a beautiful place to be. Everybody yeah. really cared about the music. Yeah. It was San Francisco in a great time to be part of that. Everybody really, really worked hard. The first yeah. album was like a dream come true. Yeah, John man. Cornette became like one of my best friends. We spent a lot of time together. I would stay at his place when I'd go to San Francisco. I mean, it was very family. And yeah. my memories about it are great. What ended up happening, though, is the typical record label stuff, which is we were successful. Another person at the label, I'm not going to call out names, but somebody had a dream that another group that they had signed would do really well. They took the, they took the earnings from our, from our project. They put it into that project. That project yeah. didn't perform. 9-11 yeah. happened, with, which killed our second record. So there wasn't, yeah. they didn't have money to restart that. So it kind of became a downward spiral with them because, you know, there was different people were vying for the, uh, control over what was happening with the catalog of music there. Um, and, you know, labels go through growth, but there was really cool people there. And that's one thing that they did have was they did have departments. They had a sales department. They had a marketing department. They had an A&R department. It was actually, I don't know how, it's because they were able to get money from um, the tech world. They started out as a tech company doing CD extra stuff. And they, right. mold, they went from being a CD extra, CD-ROM company yeah. into being a music label, a dance label. And yeah. that's how they were able to really be funded. They were funded. They were sort of like San Francisco sweethearts. So like you, right. you were at a good place because it had a lot of money. Yeah. If you didn't have staff, I was at a good place that had a lot of heart. There was enough money to make things happen. And then we just hustled really hard. I mean, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it, but to speak to that time for anyone that like didn't live through it or anyone that's like interested, it's like there were labels in the States that were indies that like, I thought it was really great. They were about the music. And yeah. even though every label had its own built-in horseshit and egos and, and bullshit that any other label would have, it was a great time and it was a great feeling when 
you know, I was always very reluctantly a touring artist. I know I opened for you guys in Seattle once and it was like Napoleon. We shared a, we shared an MC. Um, uh, Napoleon I, solo. I love that dude. Uh, Napoleon Maddox is a sweetheart. And, and I did so many different types of gigs with him. One of the things, the only things I really enjoyed about touring was that for me, I never really fit into any one sort of category. And that wasn't because I was trying to be cool. I just never knew how to develop a show. <laughs> I remember giving you a hard time about that. At, at yeah. some big rave we played or something, it might have been the One Fest E1 or something. I don't remember what it was. Maybe, but I don't know. We yeah. had played a show and then you were playing and you were up there like live triggering all, you were oh, way man. ahead of the time, like just doing yeah. all this stuff. And I was like, Adam, what you're you working do? way too hard, dude. You, I, no one I, even knows what you're doing. I, Just press play and like play an instrument and go. That's the thing. So let me give you some context for that. I was coming from, my whole thing was like not a chip on my shoulder. I really play instruments and I'm really a musician. And I always felt like if you're on stage, you got to fucking earn it. You have to play. You got to make it tough. You, you know, right. But my mentors were like, you know, one of my dad produced an artist that played three saxophones at once. Rossan Roland, <laughs> like I'm like I'm not going on stage and hitting a button. Now I get it. I get it. Every kid in the world goes on stage and hits a button and makes 80, 90 grand a night. You know, um, not every kid, but I'm just saying I didn't think that way. So of course I was making it hard on myself. But I did love that in making it hard on myself, I ended up being like. I toured and opened up for so many different types of artists that I loved being exposed to different audiences. I wasn't stuck or not stuck. I wasn't just like, yeah, I just do like I'm a house DJ and that's it. And this is where I am. And I play to these people. It never worked that way. Um, but then for a brief period, I had a live band, an eight piece live band where it was like hitting a button because it was a machine, man. It was so much fun everybody could play i always just want to be a musician you know what i mean like that's my that's my thing i mean you know i'm i my heart is where you're at i mean i i had a conversation with somebody who's you know a lot of musicians that i talked to today they started in the electronic world and that's all they really have i'm a guitar player that's always been my you know like i that's my bag it's like i'm a guitar player yeah i've played in a million bands the camaraderie of playing in bands being in a good band having a good night all yeah. of that stuff has always meant much more to me. The hard part for me is that in today's economy and just as an adult and all that other stuff, it was very hard to take that and make that work in the music world. So the electronic thing as that was happening really worked out well because I could control the productions and do all the stuff in the studio and then not have this unbelievably complicated foray into the live music scene. Yeah. And I and I and Fred and I used to play guitar and bass live, you know, with the turntables and all that stuff. Yeah. Too. We did all that, but you know, that was very controlled. And when we would open for the jam bands, I would I would kind of like sometimes really want to just sit in as a guitar player, uh, you know. And I I used to always let a motherfucker know if I, I toured with one band where they got a little like condescending, and I was like, any one of you, let me let me play the bass, man. Let me just, <laughs> just let me fucking play the bass because you're about to get a lesson. And I'm very, I'm very competitive. I'm like, I'm like Michael Jordan in a, in a pickup game. I do not like when jam band dudes get condescending. Uh, I, that, that didn't work. For well, me. especially because a lot of those guys can barely play. Yeah. No, more power to the guys who really have the soul. There's some guys out there that really, you know, 
take it to another level and i'm down with that but a lot of those bands just you know from brute force touring and being in a college town and building a mass and following and then yeah. getting on the jam band scene and they were really not excellent musicians they were just part of a really you know that scene and i get that and i hated you know it's funny though the guys that always really could play were never condescending like the horn players that could really play and the guys that i like i like we did jam cruise and i remember i forget who i was talking to it might have been carl denson and he and his wife, and I was hanging out with him, and I was always just like saying, Carl's great, though. He's I know, but I'm saying, like, great. we got down, and I was like, I don't always get that the people under, like, they like that band, but that band's crap, and you're not crap, but they don't like you as much, you know, and all that. Mm-hmm. And he was like, man, you know, it's it's about intelligence. You can't expect everybody to understand what you're doing. And that's the thing about being a musician. You have to understand what your audience is. So, um. Yeah, but the thing that's interesting about that concept is I found – if I came to like a jam band scenario as motion worker and the, and these guys don't know anything about me, the musicians that were the coolest did tend to be the best musicians. And they were curious about what the hell are you doing? And the other thing is the guys that could really play, they would listen to my gig and they would be like, they would know these musicians I was sampling and like triggering. So like a Carl Denton would be like, that's Russ on Roland Kirk. That's Les McCann. That's Fathead. That's 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 a that's a Miles Davis sample. Like, who are you? And it would just be great. Like, I would always get along, at, especially at festivals. Because festivals, that, right? Festivals were the best scenario because you were just exposed to like eight bands in one day, and you're all just hanging out, and it's just fun. I, but I, I had an experience like that. We opened for Sting for a Microsoft like computer launch thing in Bryant Park. It was like one of those big random gigs that you get like in the middle of your career. And, you know, we did our, it was a very weird set that we had to do. They wanted us to use the Microsoft equipment, which, of course, we didn't oh. use. But you know the deal. Yeah. Short of get past all that, when we were playing, I noticed that Sting's musicians were watching us play. Yeah. And afterwards, and it was the, they were all, you know, it's Marcus Miller. And who's the, Abe something? What's the drummer? Abe. Um, Wait, who's, who's Sting's Sting. Sting. Mar- it was Daryl Jones. It, it would. It wouldn't be Marcus Miller. Marcus Miller never played with with Sting, man. The guitar player was. It? Oh, the Dominic Miller. Dominic Miller. Dominic. Sorry, correct. Yeah. Right. I'm thinking Marcus Miller because of you. Oh, he would love that. <laughs> I know, but I like when I think of Marcus Miller, I always think of you, and vice versa. And I'm always like, but anyway. So Dominic yeah, Miller. Yeah. Dominic. Yeah. Yeah, but and then I forget Abe's last name. Do so, I don't know. But uh, you know the you know Sting's musicians. They're yeah. they're the cream of the crop, and like. You know, just to be around them, you're better, right? Just to be oh, yeah, in the no, room listening to them play. Probably Vinny Cayuta on. It wasn't Vinny. It was another. It was another guy's. It's Abe, Abe something. I could look it up. It's maybe um, Abe Laboriel Jr. That's who it is. Or, Black yeah. guy, big. It's usually Vinny, but like Abe would would sub for him. But now he plays with Paul McCartney. That's how fucking good Abe Laboriel Jr. is. Right. But yeah, so, so we're, we're playing, great. and they they're watching us playing. So afterwards, I'm like, I say to Abe, I'm a little I'm a little embarrassed. I'm like, you guys are kind of, why were you watching us? And he was like, because you guys are doing the new shit. Mm-hmm. He's like, we this all playing drums, all that stuff. We hear that all the time. Like we that's yeah. like he's like, were, we want to see what's going on with the new stuff. And they were like, it, yeah. there was, and they did the same thing. They understood what we were doing. Oh, that was dope! How you double timed that record, and then you went into that transition, and you did that, and blah 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 blah. And it opened my eyes to being like, oh, they're not they're not talking down to us because they want to. They're they're learning something that they can incorporate now into the way that they play, into the yeah. way that they think about music. And then funny thing to end that story, though, afterwards, um, 
so we were kind of cheesing, and Sting comes out, and we're kind of cheesing around Sting, just kind of like, damn, it's Sting, right? Yeah. And then, you know, they play, and he's amazing, whatever. And then, <laughs> after they play, Bill Gates comes out to, like, introduce the new product, and, and Sting is kind of cheesing around Bill Gates, like, he's kind of, like, oh. shy around Bill. And I'm yeah. like, that's, and that's where I came up with the idea for Hood Famous Music, which is one of our labels. I was like, you're always you're only famous in your own hood. Like, you know what I mean? No matter how big you are, you, you're, it's still a hood. It's still a little microcosm. I call it that shtetl. That's shtetl. Shtetl. Yeah. No, but that's, that's the same thing as when Chris Rock said, you know, don't forget there's somebody writing a check for Shaq and saying, here you go, Shaq, here's your check. Go buy a bouncy car. There's always someone that has like more juice, more money. Someone's going to be like, you know, more powerful than whoever you think is like the all. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I love that Mario's ch ch chanting in. Mario McNulty, amazing engineer. Abe was always on that gig, you cunts. It's yeah. true, though. Very nice. Very classy. Classy. I, you know, I think that the word should be used more in American culture. I like it when I'm in, in England or I'm in, in Australia, and you can just use it like it's tea. Like yes. a fucking cunt. You know, yeah. like, you know, all that rich cunt. How you doing, love? Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, no, it, but the interesting thing, like to just sort of like, you know, connect what we're talking about. It's like this, you know, the, 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 the label thing and the touring thing and the, and the U S experience of electronic music coming to the States and being part of like kind of the birth of that, because I know that like, I know I started messing around with this stuff in the mid late nineties and like in New York, you had house music and that was it. Like, yeah. you, like drum and bass came over. I had been living in Europe for like four years. So by the time I came home from France, I lived in France, you know, between 94 and 97, like, or 90, late 93 and 97. I just remember like, you know, all of a sudden within a couple of years period, like there were all these indie labels, there was all this emphasis on like DJ culture and vinyl and DJing and American producers. And like, it just exploded. And there were some great labels and there were, there was a nice little period. I feel like the period we had in New York between like 98 and 2005, 2006, that was fun, man. Like, I yeah, really it was real fun. Yeah, and and it was it was fun for me, like having a label deal. I owned a label, so by the time I signed a label deal, I was like, oh, let's see this voodoo economics. I know all this bullshit. So I saw how that ran, and like I knew Blackwell's label was just a front. Like it was just bullshit. Like you know, he was trying to get back in the game, but he really was not doing it the right way. And I knew that I knew that Palm was going to be over in like two years. Yeah, but um, but it was fun to. Did you guys self-release at a certain point? Did well, you what we did is we learned that we were just funny because it, it informed the way that I understand the music business today is that, <clears throat> you know, when you make, we were making albums still, albums were still valuable and vi viable yeah. and, and making it, you know, you, you could make money selling albums because they were sold for fifty ninety nine or whatever. But yeah, yeah. we, you know, the time in between in our world, the dance world was accelerated. So, People, although you, it was good for press to do an album every whatever a year and change, it wasn't really good for the dance music community because things were changing so quickly. So what we did with Manhattan Studios is we would put out records that we didn't think Ohm would do justice by 
Because right. it would be, they, see, Ohm was a house label at that point. Mark Farina yeah. was their premier artist. And we were sort of this weird, they were in the turntablist world because they were in San Francisco and they made yeah. Deep Concentration. But they weren't necessarily like ready to release drum and bass records. So we released drum and bass, experimental drum and bass records on our own label in between our releases just to keep things moving. And then we also, like the economics of break records, we were making DJ battle records. We made records that DJ Craze won battles with, and everybody was using right. our, the bar mitzvah breaks. They were called the... Yeah, dude, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the bar mitzvah breaks, there was a great... You know, this is funny. The economics of vinyl... So when people talk about vinyl coming back, it makes me want to punch them so hard in the face, I just can't even... Because the economics don't work out. So you can say whatever you want to say about vinyl coming back. There's no economic pyramid for that to work in today's culture no one has turntables so you can't anyway what we learned was when you sell vinyl to a distributor which most people don't know is that you you manufacture a piece of product it cost you would say two two dollars and 85 cents to manufacture a 12 inch if you make it a single you put a song on one side and a song on the other it makes it louder because the physical the the grooves have to be cut larger so that's why 12 inch singles have two songs on them, sometimes three, but you can only sell those for, I think it was six ninety nine. Right. If you sell an LP, you can sell an LP, which has all 13 songs or whatever on it. It's much quieter. You can't really play it in the club, No. but you can sell it for twelve ninety nine or fifteen ninety nine at the time. But battle records, DJ battle records were considered LPs, even though oh. you would put less music on there right. and people would buy two of them. Right. Left right. and right. right. So we stumbled into this battle record economy where we would make a, the, the bar mitzvah breaks became like a lucrative project because you make you put out this record that normally you're not you're barely making any money on. All of a sudden we're making fifteen ninety nine on two co- you know on two copies yeah. or whatever <laughs> nine ninety nine whatever it was. This was back in the day. So we quietly were like, oh, that's why Qbert and these guys are making these battle records because they're just like they're banking it. Yeah, that's it. Was like mixtape culture. Yeah. Totally. And the thing is, production was much easier, I think, then, too, because I, I, it's funny now, if you want to if you want to print vinyl now, it seems like you, there's like you have to wait and there's there's like only a couple places that do it. And it's like it seems like it's a nightmare. I don't know. To me, printing vinyl is like saying, you know, I'm going to get a car from the 1920s and take it on a road trip. It's like, mm. yeah, you can do that. And that might be romantic for the first 10 miles. But mm. You know, I'd rather be in a, an Audi 2021 you know, Audi Q7 to go on my road trip. Like, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what cracked me up is I knew that the vinyl thing in, in a way was kind of horseshit when I noticed that Urban Outfitters all of a sudden had a vinyl section. And I would see the jazz department. Like, they had a jazz section in the, in the vinyl or... or <laughs> Most most stores, you know, because my kid was like, you know, 12, 13, you know, a couple, you know, he's 19 now. But I would go through and I would look and I'd be like, this is furniture. Like they want. It's furniture. Yeah. 95 for a Cannonball Adderley record, which, by the way, I'd be more than happy to pay that for anything with Cannonball Adderley on it. But it's a thirty three dollar piece of vinyl that costs them two bucks and they're selling you an aesthetic. It has nothing to do with someone going in and going, holy shit, I, I need that Billy Eckstein record. They were selling covers in, in, right. in stores, you know? So um, I love that I managed to sneak in Cannonball Adderley and Billy Eckstein into our conversation. I right? like that you yeah. that you got Barton Fink into this thing. Oh, no, no. I'm, I, 
You got Barton Fink, though. That's the thing. You actually got Barton Fink, man. You know, you're not good. At, you're not good. I know a better Ming than you. I know someone that does Ming better than you. That's Barton Fink. I know. It's crazy. Um, but I'm amazed that you got that in there. Let's just talk about it really quick because, you know, it's funny. This, this hour went, went by like butter. I mean, I, I'm not surprised. I feel like we, I know that you do this also with other people. It's like we could do this every day and just have never-ending content. Because two two crazy New York Jews. My buddy, my buddy Adrian just joined. Man, what's up, Adrian? That's my man from Philly. I've known him since I was like twelve. Nice. So I, but yeah, what do you want to talk about? I'm so sorry. no, what I want to ask you. So, so I I too have the love of scoring to film, and I do that. It's not my main. I'm I'm more of a full time record producer. That's kind of like my gig, and then my artist stuff, the house music stuff I'm doing now. But. Yeah. How you moved to LA, you decided to, to peace out in New York. Was the was the LA move a conscious decision to be in the flow of the movie making business? Because it wasn't. No, I so actually everything about my move had to do with the, the my father passing away. Okay. Uh, New York for me was just like my family is gone. And I don't know about you, but I, I was I was already seeing friends move. Yeah. Uh, anyone starting a family was you know, moving to Jersey or Connecticut or, or sometimes to Philly or whatever. And I just reached the point in my life. I, th I was 37 when my old man passed away. I'm 49 now. So I was, uh, yeah. And I was already working on documentaries. I love working, scoring documentary films. That's like really my, like my passion. And I was doing it. I was doing a nice amount of work for HBO. Like while I was doing my motion worker stuff and, you know, I just figured out how to get into that game. And it, and it, it honestly, it fit my lifestyle so much better. Like, I'm just like, I'm, I'm an extroverted human that loves to not be around people. So I like, I stay in my studio when I'm social. I love to be social, but I really love to just stay in the studio and write. So what really the, the move to LA was really about family and moving to a place that I thought would just be a great lifestyle for my family. My, my, my son was going into his sixth grade year, uh, you know, middle school was starting. And I actually, after my father passed, I moved to Philly briefly. And I lived in Philly in the suburbs. I do not recommend that to anyone <laughs> on the fucking planet. Um, and I thought, you know, my, you know I, I, my, my son is my stepson. And he came into my life when he was eight years old. And I was just like, I'm not making this kid move to New York. So long, long story short, we decided as a family, maybe there will be some career things for me in LA, but I was kind of fine wherever I was. I was doing film work, living in New York and in Philly. But I will say this, the amount of work goes up when you're, especially for TV work, when you're in LA. There's yeah. proximity to certain things that just don't exist in other places. So I've gotten opportunities for TV and certain film things, but my documentary thing was already like a thing. So I, I, you know, I, I think I moved to LA because I just wanted to have some space and nicer weather. I, I'm so sick of winter, you know? Um, I, I mean, I feel you, dude. I feel you. You know, we, we, yeah. I, I'm a lucky guy. We have a beach house out. I'm in Sag Harbor right now. We moved, we pieced out oh, nice. a while ago. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, live in Harlem and all that, but we were out here. I come out here during the summers and, and do all that kind of stuff. And I think if we didn't have this, we would have moved to Colorado or LA or something like that just yeah. to, you know, just to have a different sort of lifestyle. But I'm a huge beach person. So I'm out here right. doing my beach thing and all that, but <clears throat> we need right. to, let me just two things. So yeah. first thing, the, the reason why I started the re-up is because 
I've been having conversations with musicians I hadn't spoken to in years when this whole thing came down. Yep. And I found myself on the phone with guys that I really liked for an hour at a time, two hours at a time. And I don't speak to anybody. Right. Like, you know, you're not like that. I'm social like you're social. Like, I'm out there, go get her. But I'm usually very, like, succinct. I don't like small talk. And I'm like, you know. But I realized one of the parts, things that I missed a lot in, in being in bands is the camaraderie of, like, the experience you have as a musician. So it kind of made me start this re-up thing because I wanted to be able to have time to speak to people that I really like and also enjoy. I want to learn from their experiences. So yeah. after this call, we got to stay in touch more. We got to keep talking. Yeah. We got to do all that stuff because it's important. You know, as we get older, you, you do less and less of it, right? It's yeah, just, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I do this, th I do this thing at the end of every re-up. I ask you a couple, bunch of dumb questions. So Hit just me. don't, don't, don't think too hard. I never do. <laughs> faith or science yeah i'm sorry faith or science science rave or festival dude neither <laughs> ocean lake or desert ocean lake or desert desert big room or small room Oh man, don't bring me into this DJ horse shit. No uh, man, like you know when you play in a band, it's the same thing. You play a big room, yeah. you play a small room. The air moves differently. How do you I, put I like big room for that for music. I had something about more people, more energy, more love. No judgment. I, I I personally like the energy of small room for connection, but I like the way air moves in a big room much better. Big room, bigger check. <laughs> <laughs> uh, acid or mushrooms? Oh, man. It's funny. I saw you talking to Ray Roker and you asked this question and I was like, where's this coming from? Um, neither. I don't do drugs, man. Oh, that's good. You know, I get to tell you, super disappointed. That was one of my favorite things that I did with Ray and, and Instagram took a shit at the end and I couldn't upload it. It literally oh. got frozen. And I was like, I was crushed. My whole oh. weekend, I was crushed because Raymond feels like a brother that I never had. Like we have yeah. very, very similar upbringings in two different yeah. places. And, you know, you don't, like, again, I got to s learn more about him during that thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I just found a new brother and I lost this episode. Oh, so man. anyway, um, what's your superpower? Um, funkiest Jew on the planet. Whether or not you agree with that, I don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> what would you how would you incorrectly describe your job? Incorrectly? Oh, my God. Um uh, I write music for people that I have an enormous amount of respect for, and their input is greatly appreciated at all times, especially when they're producers. What animals should survive if only one can survive? Dogs. Cat oh, yeah, so I was going to ask you cat or dog, so no, dogs. no need there. If not music, then what? Philosophy. Favorite meal? Faux rigatoni bolognese. My wife kills it with the fake meat. Hunter or gatherer? Gatherer. What's the last gift you gave someone? I I rescued uh, a dog in my wife's name with a with a animal rescue, Labelle Labelle Rescue in L.A. And being an ex New Yorker, we only have forty five seconds left. But uh, do you have a favorite deli? Oh, I do. I do. And it's Langer's Delic Delicatessen in L.A., believe it or not. That's awesome. It's, a, it's, a, it's the best fucking corned beef sandwich on the planet. I was stunned. Favorite metal band? Oh, shit. Uh, is Van Halen a metal band? for the I'll first give it metal. First four records. First all right. Four. All right. Last question. What genre are the talking heads? 
That's amazing. I love that. Their genre is music. They make music. Adam, I love you. We're going to get kicked off in three seconds. I'll, I'll let you know when we post this up. Thanks so much for doing this. I'll speak to you soon. All right, man. Be good.